show. And so if you missed that, you want to see that, you can watch that first and then come back and reflect upon this as well. So it comes out of Proverbs as well as some New Testament references. Discipline for obedience. It's why we are disciplined. It's why our Lord disciplines us. Glamma, who sits beside me here, has a magic secret sauce that she uses when something bad goes, goes on in the house with the grandchildren, like they get a splinter, they cut their finger, or they skin their knees. It's called liquid bandage. If you never use liquid bandage, there's a consequence of using it. Becky's really good friend, who's her hairdresser, had never used it before, and when she was working one day, she accidentally nipped her finger. So she called up Glamma and said, hey, what's that stuff? I said, liquid bandage is okay. So she ran to the store, she got some liquid bandage, and shortly after that, she sent Becky a text and said, I tried your liquid bandage. You're an evil, evil woman. <laughs> One of the most painful experiences she said she's ever had when she put it on. So there is a consequence to liquid bandage is when you apply it, it hurts really bad for a minute. <laughs> and then it covers the sore and it heals. And it actually protects it like a bandage does. And it doesn't fall off in a shower. And within a couple of days, you're healed. So this week, Zebbie comes running up to Glamma and goes, Glamma, Glamma, I need some of your liquid stuff. Zebbie, at five years old, understood something. It's going to hurt, but then it's going to get better. See, that's discipline. Discipline's going to hurt for a minute. It's going to take a minute for you to go, whoa, that's not what I thought was going to happen just then. Oh, but I see that your best for me is at the root of this. And now I see things better. My life is better. I've course corrected. I've changed the path. I'm now moving in a much better direction because of what I just experienced. There's things in life that do that, like, you know, hot stoves. When you reach out there and you put your hand on it and you go, that's really uncomfortable. I think I'm going to stop. God put that into our lives to go, don't do that. And it causes us to stop and go, I'm not going to make that mistake again. You know, when you get older, you, you learn those things. It seems like repeatedly, like, don't put your shoes there because you'll trip over them. And sometimes you just keep doing it because you're just me. But you remember that discipline comes from the Word of God. There's some Proverbs here I want you to look at. So Proverbs 3, 11, 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary for his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son whom he delights. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 12, 1. We're in the dark, huh? She's got the look. Well, let's see if I mess things up down here. Oh, we got a thumbs up, so maybe it's going to come. Proverbs 12.1, 1, 
The one who loves discipline loves knowledge, but the one who hates reproof is stupid. That's a great one to tell the kids, right? <laughs> this is ESV, okay? This was not the Kent Wallace version of the Bible Scripture. I know, you think with seven sons, Kent probably wrote that. But no, actually, we did have a little phrase for one of our sons that I won't mention who's present today. Is, <laughs> it was a phrase that he actually, it became such a statement at one point in time, he actually, when he got an email address, he made it his email address, which was, don't be dumb at AOL.com. <laughs> don't be dumb. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. I thought I'd hear an amen there. That's right. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Do you think God cares in his word about the concept of discipline and obedience? Throughout all Proverbs and all the way into the New Testament, we get this story of God's concern about us being obedient and using discipline in order to course correct. Luke 24, Luke 2, 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they, they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So before you think they're just really irresponsible Mary and Joseph parents, you've got to understand the condition of that time. And that time, if you traveled to Passover, you traveled in a caravan. Like, it was a group of people, a large group of people. And you're traveling. So think about our camping friends that are up north. They all went up there. They're all gathering to go to the same location, but they all took different vehicles. And if I was to guess, if there were some friends, some cousins, some brothers and sisters that were all going on that trip, they may have swapped cars, right? Some may have rode in this car. Some may have rode in that car. Some friends may have rode with each other. So they didn't all arrive at the same time, nor were they all traveling together. Well, that's a very common tradition back in those days, where you have a string, maybe a mile or two long, of, of the whole family or group of a village going together. So a, a, a day down the road, it's like you start to wonder, like, huh, I wonder where Rob is. It's like it's been all day. We haven't seen him all day. So let's go down to the next campfire and let's see if he's there. Well, he's not there. And you walk down to the next campfire and see if he's there. And he's not there. And... By the time you go through all the campfires and you realize you're missing your son, panic starts to set in. This is Mary and Joseph. After three days, they found him in the temple. So they went back to Jerusalem and they looked for three days. Anybody panicked after three days? We lost Nathan for three hours. After I got done rejoicing, we got concerned and worried. That was a joke. Nathan, I love you, son. We got concerned, like he was missing, did not know where he was. It was like this heart-wrenching panic of like, where is he? Where did he go? After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, so understand something. 
I'm astonished at how well you're teaching. This is what she says next. Son, why have you treated us so? She didn't go, you must be the Messiah. Praise God to Jesus. She went, what are you doing? Where have you been? Why are you here, not with us? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Was Mary a parent? A concerned mom? Was she terrified? And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I just want you to know, if this was Becky and Kent and not Mary and Joseph, this is when the bar of soap comes out. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, which I kind of wonder what that really meant. Like at that point in time, oh, course correction. Got it. Got it, Dad. Got it, Mom. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Course correction. Discipline for obedience. Here's some of my basic thoughts when we think about this. Children will do embarrassing things, but they are never an embarrassment. I think one of the hardest things when you start to raise children, when you have your grandchildren with you, when you have the neighbor kid over, is to always remember their children. They're kids. And they're going to do embarrassing things, but they're never an embarrassment. Because you did that too. You did embarrassing things too. But to make someone feel like they are an embarrassment then imposes shame. And shame is not a course correction. Discipline is a course correction. Doing something wrong and, and calling out that their action was in, in, inappropriate is the goal, not that they are inappropriate. To call them out that they have sin in their life and that they're sinning is critical. Calling them out that they are stupid or in, or, or wrong and they are, are faulty as a human being and attacking their character is wrong. It's damaging. So always keeping in our mind that when our children do things wrong, it's because they're children. And they will do things that are embarrassing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Second, anger is a secondary emotion. Mary was mad. She was angry. You know why she was angry? because she was scared. See, fear oftentimes results in anger. We get mad because we're scared. Anybody ever have a little boy, a little girl run out into the street? What was the pitch of your voice? What was the level of your emotion? You were angry, like all the way to 10. But it was fear that drove that anger. Because you're fearing for their life. You discipline when you're composed. So if that little boy or girl runs out in the street, the last moment you want to start giving a swat is at that moment. Because they may never walk again. We raised seven boys. So we understand that composure in the moment is critical. We believe, and we'll talk a little about this, about corporal punishment. We believe. We believe in discipline where it's a swat on the hand or a swat on the butt, appropriately done but never out of anger, always when composed, always when I've gathered myself, have a minute so that we can properly institute course correction. I never called it that whenever they were growing up, by the way. Slow obedience is disobedience. 
Joni shared that with us this week when we were in our, our study group before the message. And I think that is such a powerful thing to understand. Slow obedience is disobedience. How many of you grew up in a house where counting was the key? You need to come in here right now. Right? One, two, anybody? Anybody have that little, that was? So, my young grandson was in the room watching TV, and I had asked him to do something, and I'm like, Coy, can you please go take care of that for me? He lay there watching TV. Coy, can you please go do that for me? He was watching TV. I went, one, two, at that moment, his father walked in, and I heard, Coy, when do we obey? And he goes, immediately, stood up, and he walked into the other room. I looked at him, and my son looks at me, he goes, we don't count. course correction. All of a sudden I realized, why am I counting? When do we obey? Immediately. When does God want us to obey? Immediately. God's not up there going, don't sin. Don't, one, two, no. When we're off path, he's like, the Holy Spirit immediately goes, uh-uh-uh-uh, no. You know the conviction of your heart is immediate. You know you're in the wrong. The Holy Spirit is telling you immediately, change your course. Don't wait. How do you obey? How you obey and respect your parents is the foundation of how you obey and respect your Heavenly Father. Brendan and Sarah Bailey practice this in their home. They talk about it all the time. Like, how you treat us, mom and dad, is a picture of how you view your Heavenly Father. It's a picture. Which leads me to this. Discipline for obedience for parenting is this. We have to understand we are not supposed to be perfect parents. We're not supposed to be perfect grandparents. You're simply signposts for our children pointing to the perfect. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to point to perfection. You have to constantly be telling your children, listen, we're going to get it wrong. And believe me, with seven sons, there was times that someone got a swat that was somebody else's fault. Guaranteed. We found out one from our little two-year-old son who's now at his wedding, and we're at the, the rehearsal dinner, and one of the fun things we do is we go around and we, we talk about what we appreciate about the person at the, at the rehearsal dinner, what we love about them, how we know them, those type of things. So Rob comes up, places his hands on his brother Topher's shoulders, and says, I'm sorry. When we were in Washington, and you were like three or four years old, and I was six years old, and you got spanked for falling into the reflection pool at the Washington Monument, I know I pushed you in. <laughs> and I know you got spanked for it. And I want to tell you now, I am sorry on your 24th birthday and your wedding. We're not perfect parents. We constantly try to point our children to perfection. One of the most significant moments in my life, honestly, I believe, is that, um, and I didn't ask Sam for permission to this, but he'll forgive me, I'll pray. Um, we're in the living room, and I realized that some of the challenges that Sam was going through in his life was because of Becky and I. 
Like, like it or not, we're parents, we're culpable, we're part of why our children turn out the way they are. We're trying to do our best, we're trying to do everything we can, but in some ways, the message doesn't always come through like we intend. And so I apologized to him. I asked him to forgive me because I knew in some ways I contributed to some of the challenges he was having in his life. He said that was important to him. It was critical for me to remind myself that we're not supposed to be perfect. We're forgiven, and I had a number of different times had to turn to my children, get down on a knee, and say, I'm sorry. Dad got it wrong. And that teaches restoration. That teaches your children to look at Christ because that's what you're doing, that you're a sinner just the same. As a grandparent, there's times that I've got it wrong with my grandchildren, and I needed to apologize. They needed to see that, dad, that Grandpa, that Poppy, could be humble, could be broken, could ask for forgiveness. Even from a four-year-old or a seven-year-old. So there's five phases of parenting that, that we kind of laid out. This is kind of how I picture the phases of what we go through. Phase one is zero to six. That's the age of discipline and obedience. Seven to 12 is the age of discovery. 13 to 18 is the age of the test drive or the pre-adult. 19 to 25 is the age of young adult, and then 26 plus is the age of adulthood, where we transition from parent, which you'll always be, but friend and mentor, if God so blesses. So the age of discipline and obedience, that's zero to six years age. Beware of permissive parenting. Zero to six is not about asking them what they want to do, or asking them what they want to eat or asking them if they want to put their shoes on, but it's time to go to church. It's the age of telling them that we're putting our shoes on. It's telling them what they're going to eat. It's telling them what is good for them. But you're ingraining in a young man's mind, young woman's mind, what is good for them, because they don't know. They're naturally just going to go after whatever feels good to them, despite it being really, really bad for them. I remember being in elementary school, I might have been even in first grade, so this is a little after this, but it gives, does highlight the point. I was homesick from school. My mom was a teacher, so she got a babysitter. Babysitter was there, and she comes to me and goes, oh, you're sick, your stomach's upset, what would you like to eat? And I was like, anything I want? Anything you want. Oh, French fries would be amazing. No problem. Big. I'm, this is Texas, so big pan of fried grease, potatoes thrown in, fried up a big plate of, of fried French fries, put them on a plate, big thing of ketchup. Oh, I was in heaven for all of about 30 minutes. I shouldn't have got what I wanted. I should have got what was best for me. My mom was not particularly happy when she got home from school that day, and I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse. My stomach was even more upset at that point in time. You're not friends yet. Your children need to love and respect you because you know what's best. And you will guide and direct them accordingly because you will hold them to that. Beware of negotiated parenting. You can't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> Two-year-olds are terrorists. If you're questioning my logic here, Understand what the definition of a terrorist is. A terrorist is somebody that's willing to die for their cause. 
A two-year-old will die for their cause. <clears throat> Rob was sitting in the high chair, had to be around that age of between zero and six, I know for sure. Becky was working with him to feed him some carrots. I came home and my white shirt looked just like Sam with my tie on from, from working that day, and, and she said, he won't eat them. I go, they don't get to choose that. He will eat the carrots. She goes, he won't eat them. He will eat them. He won't eat them. He will eat them. I sat down, took a spoonful, open your mouth. He's like, eh, in. He's like, every time he started to cry, another spoonful of carrots. Every time another, another spoonful of carrots. That said, see, he'll eat them. Another spoonful, another spoonful. I mean, like, babe, you just have to be the parent in the situation. Last spoonful in, ta-da. He looks at me and goes, <laughs> My white shirt was now orange. I handed her the jar and said, okay, he's yours. <laughs> but we learn to course correct. We learn to work with them, through them, and create environments where they can be successful. So they're not always going to know what's best for them. That's what you're there for. And negotiating parenting means when it's time to put your shoes on, you put the shoes on. You don't ask them if they want to put the shoes on. When it's time to eat, you sit down to eat. One of the things I've seen very common in the modern era is food and how we do food. And food is mealtime. And learning the discipline of when to eat and when not to eat is important. But if the feeling is I can eat anytime I want to eat, all I have to do is go to the snack shop. I don't have to eat what's for breakfast. I can just go to the cupboard and grab whatever I want to. I lose the discipline of food and understand there's a, there's a responsibility and there's a time to eat. And snacks aren't bad, but they're not intended to be the meal. And so understanding that putting those structures in place early in a child's life actually is healthy for them and understanding that discipline. One of the things we learned early on, even in organizational groups that I worked with when I was teaching and training um, in what's called facilitator training. So we're going to try to teach a small group of people to go from point A to point B. We did this a lot in the high school ministry. So you've heard of challenge courses and climbing walls and high ropes course. Well, a lot of those things are challenges that we use to teach somebody how to understand their limitations, what, what's right in their life, what's wrong in their life, how they can work through this. This is something we learned really early. You cannot facilitate somebody who has no discipline. I can't put somebody on a high ropes course that doesn't respect the fact that they're 32 feet above the ground. I would never put a four-year-old up there because they have no consciousness of the consequences of a poor decision. We also learned that you pretty much can't facilitate junior hires, ever. <laughs> it's kind of funny, sixth grade, yep. Seventh, eighth, ninth, mm, tenth, yep, they get it back again. There's a moment there, we don't know what it is, but it's a phenomenon that you just have to get through junior high. But without discipline, you can't facilitate, you can't negotiate. You have to show right and wrong, and it has to be clear. Try to create a yes environment. One of the things I think that's really critical so that you're not disciplining all the time is having spaces where it's okay to be a kid. We worked hard to take all the stuff that was ever precious and ever important to us and put them in a box far, far away. Because we learned really quickly, if there's one thing in the room that they can't touch, that's the one thing they will touch. If there's one thing that's the precious heirloom that you got from your great, 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 great grandmother, that is the item they will break in the room, guaranteed. So create a yes environment. Create a space in your house where it's okay to be a kid. 
where if something does get thrown, it's an old lamp that gets broken and not the brand new precious heirloom that you've always wanted to keep until the day you die. A yes environment means I do discipline, but I also create spaces in our house where my grandchildren can come and play and not worry that something might get broken. I had a great father, loved me very much, but didn't really understand children. I had a great father-in-law who loved me very much that absolutely adored kids. And he taught me so much about what it means to love unconditionally my children by the way he treated them. I remember one day we were at the house and a couple of the boys were doing what little boys do, which was going to the top of the stairs of the carpeting and sliding down them like it's a sled. So it's boom, 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 run to the top of the stairs, boom, 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 down the stairs. All of a sudden, my father-in-law went, Rob, Tom, stop that. And I'm like, oh, man, like, is that okay? He goes, get in here. And so he brought my two sons in. And I'm like watching going, okay, what, what, what's going to happen here? Because when my dad yelled, it was just one of those things where you thought you were going to die. But there's a 50-50 chance that it might happen. And he brought them in, and he grabbed them both. He pulled them up on his lap, and he goes, guys, let's not do that in the house. If you want to play like you're on a sled, go outside and grab a sled. Let's not use the stairs. And they gave him noogies on the head, and he let them go. I went, huh, you can be a grandparent, and you can course correct in a very loving, appropriate way. Incredible model for me to follow. I'm thankful to this day. So what about corporal punishment? What about a SWAT? One, it's biblically supported. Scripture is very clear. This is not an archaic concept that we should be moving away from in our modern genre. Matter of fact, when I was in the 1960s, there were people writing books saying we should never spank children anymore. And they were wrong because... Scripture is very clear. I grew up in, in a public school system in Texas where teachers gave swats. There was paddles on the wall in junior high that if you got out of line, you got a swat in junior high. My parents weren't even swatting at that point in time. You really made sure not to mess up with the coach in his history class. Like any strong teacher, you said, yeah. Here's the value of corporal punishment a slap on the hand, a spot on the butt, is it connects disobedience with correction immediately. This is what we know. The farther away sin gets from consequence, the more entrenched it becomes. If I do something wrong, suffer no consequences, I do something wrong, suffer no consequences, do something wrong, suffer no consequences, I start to entrench a behavior. Now, some of you go, well, I do punish. We, we do time out. Well, here's the problem. To a four-year-old, to a five-year-old, to a six-year-old, what is time out? Time out is free time to sit in the bathroom and play with the sink. It's, it's, it's reading time in the corner. It's not a consequence of any significance. It's not a hot stove that I touch and go, ooh, I'm not doing that again. It's just a... Silent negotiation. But a SWAT is an instantaneous restoration of you did wrong and now it needs to be right. So we believe in this age, zero to six, that you should be practicing corporal punishment because it's what scripture teaches. Typically it's one, no more than three SWATs. To this day, since Mel and Joni are here, 
I can talk about the greatest swats that were ever given in the history of the Wallace family. Zachary Wallace and Joel Brummel were out playing at tripods. They were shooting BB guns. It was wintertime, they had coats on. One of them turned the other one and shot the other one in their coat. Pop! Made a great noise. That's fun. So they started chasing each other around, shooting each other in their coats. Well, that got boring after a while, so they started hiding behind trees and then looking out around the tree and shooting at each other. Problem now, what's the only thing I can hit? Yep, Zach got shot in the neck by a BB and pelts in his neck. To this day, Zach talks about one of the greatest injuries and scars he ever received, which wasn't the pellet in the knee or in the, in the neck. It wasn't the three swats that he got from playing with BB guns and almost losing an eye and getting shot in the face. It was the fact that he got a worse punishment than Joel did. Joel had to write a paper. Mel, really, a paper? <laughs> That's not true. He also had to file a police report, so had Joel had to sit there and report a shooting of his best friend. <laughs> That he had to do. So his consequences were severe too, but they were immediate. They were connected. Like, this is bad danger. This is a serious situation. You could have permanently changed your life. And he needed to understand that this was what was really important, is you having the fullest life possible because you haven't crippled yourself because I was passive in my response. Discuss actions and consequences. Hold until fully restored. Anytime, anytime I swatted any of the boys, the next thing I did is I dropped down on a knee, I pulled them into my arms, and I held them until they stopped crying. And then I said, do you know what happened? Do you know why you were, you were punished? Do you need to make an apology to one of your siblings because of what you've done? And we restored. And every single time that happened, then we were good. Situation, consequence, restoration, restored. And that felt to me the model of what Christ does for us. Sin, forgiveness, grace, mercy, restored. We learn that every child is different. Some of our kids, quite honestly, I never really had to swat. Because all I had to do is look at them and go, I am so disappointed in you. And it was like, game over. They were broken. They disappointed their parents. Life changed. They never needed a swat. There's others that were very resourceful, and it didn't matter how much I did. They learned how to put the magazines in their pants. They learned, they learned to cry in the middle of the backhand. Ah! I haven't even hit you yet. Doesn't count. So you learn that every child is different. So you work with them based on who they are. The idea is correction, not spanking. You understand that there's a reason for it. There's a tool, but it's not the only tool. And as they get older, there's going to be other course corrections, other discipline that will be more effective. Age 7 to 12. This is the age of discovery. Allow them to try new things. One of the things that we learned with our kids is that they're all different. There's times that they like things and there's times that they don't like things. Topher, I apologize. We're going to talk about chicken on the bone. 
Topher had this thing with chicken on the bone, which when he was really young was no big deal. We just cut the chicken off the bone and then he ate it. But as the years went by, he became old enough to be able to, you can cut your own chicken off the bone. And so we had a showdown one day when it was like, you're not leaving the table until you've eaten all the chicken off the bone. And it was like four to five hours of a negotiation. It, well, he was too old to be swatted. It didn't make sense to swat him. And we just thought, we'll, we'll, we'll get this through. Ultimately, we finally realized this. Okay, this is like a stalemate. But I heard something by Cynthia Tobias that talked about just the difference in temperaments and personalities of children. And he said, one of the things that with some kids, it's all about control. So when they feel out of control, they panic and they'll trench in. They behave like a terrorist. They're willing to die on that hill. And Topher all of a sudden was like, I'm not eating chicken on the bone. I don't care. It's the day I die. So we learned that Topher in some situations needed to be left in control. So what we do is simply say this. This is it. This is the meal that's prepared for you. Mother worked hard. It's a great meal. All we ask is you try everything. And you don't have to eat everything, but you need to at least make an effort and have the meal that mom's prepared. She's a great cook. If you don't eat it, there's no dessert. By the way, mom, just like Glamma, there's always dessert at the Wallace houses. So if you ever want to swing by, there's always dessert at the Wallace house. We would wrap it with saran wrap. We would stick it in the refrigerator, and that's the next meal they eat. So it's breakfast in the morning. And you have a choice. You can either eat this now, or you can eat it for breakfast in the morning. They wake up the next morning, they come down looking for a bowl of cereal, you pull the plate out, you warm it up, and go, here's the meal before you go to school. I don't want to eat it. No problem. No breakfast. You go to school, and we'll throw it away. You start fresh at lunchtime. This is what we learn. It basically takes about 12 hours on a hungry stomach to learn, I think I can pretty much eat anything in front of me once. And they stayed in control. It was their choice. You can either eat this now, you can eat it for breakfast, or we'll throw it away and start fresh on, at lunch tomorrow. Once or twice is all it took to correct it because they were allowed to start to find their path to what made sense. We challenged them to take risk. In our house, sports were optional. Music was mandatory. We made our boys, all of our boys, find something in the arts and performance to do. Uh, Sam, the drums that we're blessed by today. Um, Rob was music and, and play. Topher was performing arts and singing. Um, most of them ended up in something in singing and performing arts. And to this day, they use that here in church and in their life. Because we knew sports is a fleeting thing for a boy, but music is forever. And it teaches you to be part of something else. And it's a discipline. And we wanted our boys to learn disciplines and to be able to connect with different people. And so we pushed them and challenged them to take risk, to, to live outside of what their comfort zone was. Be careful not to reflect and reinforce your own fears. We all do that. We learn that children are not scared of the dark. They're not scared of noises that we teach them those things. They're not scared of water, by the way. If you doubt me, for nine months, your baby's underwater, in the dark. And then we teach them how to be scared of water, how to be scared of the dark. So we decided not to. So our rooms were completely dark. Kids never were scared of the dark because their, their cribs were dark. Our kids learned from a very young age, like toddler level, to swim underwater. They learned with water on their face. They were taking showers 
from the day they were born. Don't drown them, but you can wash them in a shower. They can handle it. They're used to water on their face. They learn to be fearful of it. So thinking about these things is that what do I fear and what am I pushing on to my children? What are appropriate fears and what are those fears that I should be careful of? Middle age. You're raising adults, not children. Biblically sound decision makers that will make a positive contribution to society. I can't save my kids. Can't save them. But I can teach them the word of God and I can teach them how to apply it and no matter what happens, no matter what choice they make, if they accept Christ or don't accept Christ, they will be better for you in this community having ethics and values that are based on an absolute truth than they would be without it. So we can't choose to get our kids saved, but we can choose to teach them the truth. We can lay a foundation to make them a biblically sound decision maker. They'll make a positive contribution to society. But it takes discipline. You have to teach obedience. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. So we have to let them, during this age of 13 to 8, to make mistakes on their own. They have to come to the point where they are free to make some choices. And believe me, it's terrifying. But I wanted my children to have an environment where they could make some mistakes while they're still in the house. I didn't want them to act perfect. I didn't want them to act like, oh, I know I've got it all together. I wanted them to be free to say, I don't know if I believe what you believe. And so we could discuss that. And our boys were raised in an environment that that was okay. It was okay to have a hard conversation at 13 to tell you, I don't think I believe in your Jesus. I don't think I like your church. Which I had boys tell me that. I don't believe like you and mom do. And I had to say, okay, what do you believe? How are you going to find out if that belief is true? How are you going to test that to make sure it will hold you for the rest of your life? I was confident that Jesus could speak for himself. That if he could overcome the Baals of the world or the pharaohs of the world with his power and his word, that he could probably overcome a Wallace boy and his stubborn pride. But I had to give them some freedom to start to figure out if they believed what was true. Now, in my house, my rules. So we had some mandatory things. They will go to church with us. If they didn't want to go to church with us, then I gave them the option. They could go to church one day a month someplace else, and I would go with them. So once they were 13, 14, 15 to 18 years old, if they wanted to go to church someplace else, I would go with them one time a month, but our house would go to First Baptist Church because that was my home. And I told them, once you're 18, you're going to be free to go whenever you want to go. But God gave you to me. So I have a responsibility in my house to teach and train and equip you to the best, most positive functioning contribution to society as I can. And when you're gone, by God's speed, well, that's what happened. Let them test why they believe what they believe. Reinforce and allow other voices to speak godly messages into your teen's lives. The Pinkleys are those voices. Samuelsons, Brenners, Smiths, Lois, Hose, Smirkas, Drodes, Wallstroms, Rommels, Evans, Ladenbergers, Gillies, these families, 
Van Valkenburgs. They raised the voice. They partnered with us. They leaned in. Church family was the anchor that kept our boat from crashing into the shore. Because my seven sons didn't always hear me. But they heard you because of your love for them. Because of your care for them. Because they, you believed in them even when they didn't always believe in themselves. Families like the Stoffers who would just take the time to love our kids. Reinforce not other forces, voices to speak godly messages into your teen's life. It's the same message. It's a different voice. We don't all get the same message. I'm not so arrogant to believe that this message today will reach everybody in this room. My trust is the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, will open your hearts to what he's trying to teach you and prepare you. That's all I can pray. And that's what you can pray for your children. If not you, then somebody will come through. Age of 18 to 25, in our view, the most difficult age of parenting. Why do I say that? Well, this is the scenario. They head off to college. Hooray, they're off to school. Or they head off to the military or they head off to their first job. You get a phone call. Dad, got a question. Got this big situation, big thing going on this weekend. What do you think I should do? First you go, they're calling and asking me for a counsel. They're calling and asking me for advice. Babe, we won. We're so smart. This is brilliant. You give them some great counsel, some great advice, and four weeks later they call you up. Dad, here's my situation. And as they're unfolding the situation, you realize, wait, 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 wait. Didn't we talk four weeks ago? Yep. Didn't I tell you not to go to that weekend celebration thing that you thought would be a great idea? Yep. And you went anyway. Yep. So what should I do now? Call somebody else. <laughs> it's so challenging. It's so difficult because this is the point in time when they take ownership. This is when they, they become parents. They become adults. They become responsible. And they take responsibility for everything that you have taught them. So they leave and they cleave. The, the line between unconditional love and, and, and enabled enablement is razor thin. But you do it because now you no longer have control of them inside your home. So you love them unconditionally. You point them to the truth. You give them counsel as a mentor, as a brother, as a friend in Christ that you would give them. And you trust that God has them in their hand. You don't ever compromise the truth. You don't ever compromise the word. When they come into your home, it is always their home. But it's your house. So your house, your rules. So we follow biblical principles living in our house. So that means if you have a girlfriend, you don't sleep in the same room. Not in my house. This is my rules. You're now their brother or sister in Christ. You guide them to the word when it comes to making decisions. You tell them the truth in love. And you cheer for them every step of the way. We always have to remember that we are sending them as missionaries to a time and a place that we'll never see. It's worth the battle. It's worth the truth. It's worth investing into this generation because we're not going where they're going. We're going to celebrate communion. 
Communion is about remembering what Christ did for us. The only way that remembrance carries on is if this next generation takes ownership of it. If we impart to them, if we embark into them. Dear friend that sits here in this church this morning, her name is Linda Evans. She's 74 years old. She's our Kids Hope Director. You all know she's battling cancer. And she fights every day for the next generation to walk with Jesus. Kids Hope at Pine Trails is her responsibility. At 74 years old, she's leaning in every single day to the glory of God, trying to set a pace and a pattern that others, a teenager, might look up and go, huh, could I walk like that all the way to the end, to the last day? Could I serve that way until God calls me home? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and love? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline hurts for a minute. But we become better because of it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word has been honored today. I pray that Kent has gotten out of the way. I know there's a lot of our story in this. But for 40 years, Lord, you've been teaching me your word, and I've tried with all my heart to apply it. This church, Lord, for 34 years has poured into me, and once again, it's this church's message lived out. Father, I thank you for each of those in this room that has poured into this next generation. I pray for each one of those that is currently parenting children and trying to figure it out. May your word strengthen them. May this message encourage them. May they hold fast to your word as they instruct their children and prepare them. Father, I pray for the grandparents in this room that they don't shy away from their opportunity to serve, to teach, to train, to equip, to love, 
the greatest gift of another generation to lean in and be real and tell the truth in love and show the grandchildren the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those that are a voice in another person's life. Help them to have the courage to step in, to speak the truth in love, to find another soul, a generation below, that they can encourage to walk with you. Because, Father, that's what we had to have. And I pray that none shy away from that opportunity. And, Father, each of us, I pray, don't recoil from your discipline of us so that we may become more righteous, so that we may understand it's the Father's love that disciplines those he loves to draw us closer to you and be a better reflection of the love so others might see a signpost pointing to you. And all of God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen.